Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, media strategist, and health coach helping you live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, and I am looking forward to sharing this interview with you today with Cliff Taylor, who is a writer, poet, speaker, and author of the book, The Memory of Souls, which is a memoir about the healing he found through the Sundance and his work and walk with the little people. He is an enrolled member of the Ponca tribe of Nebraska and currently lives in Astoria, Oregon, where he is hard at work on a number of unpublished books that he hopes will one day be published books. He can be reached through his website, cliffponka.com, and we'll have that in the show notes. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. We get into who the little people are, because you may be wondering. Also, how he moved through his life as a Ponca Indian, learning about his tribe and his culture and the ceremonies and different experiences that he's had. That have opened his mind and he shares a lot about how he came to understand reality in new ways. And I think it's really helpful for people to hear who are looking for different ways to connect to spiritual practice themselves or to better understand our reality. So I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you do too. Let's jump right in. Hello, Cliff Taylor. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Paula. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. It's good to see you. Cliff and I used to live in the same town of Astoria, Oregon, and now I live in Maine. So it's nice to see you. It's good to see you too. And I find it kind of funny because I am in the office that maybe you conducted this podcast previously. I mean, I probably wasn't thinking about the podcast, but I hadn't launched it yet. So yeah, when we moved out, you moved into our home. So it's very nice to see you in our old home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we absolutely love taking over this roost that you and your uh, husband, Kiaho, rock and rolled so beautifully in for the time that you did. We love it here. We're glad that it's in good hands. Um, so one of the first things I wanted to talk about with you is you know, you're a pretty prolific writer. And I wanted to talk to you about your journey becoming a writer. And if you've always thought of yourself as a writer. It, it goes back to uh, the beginning of my memories for me. Since I was a, a little dude, a very, very, very little dude, I was always kind of drawing. Whatever happens inside of the human being when the creative process is spilling out and pouring out and materializing out of them, some part of me has always had a relationship with that, has had just a kind of uh, unending, ever-present love affair with that. And I think even as a tiny little kid where you know I lived in these uh, dorms, especially for single parents with my mom the first five years of my life when she was going to college to get her teaching degree. And I would draw, 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 draw. And that love of drawing just remained naturally present. There was a lot of uh, rough elements in my upbringing. And I think that just kind of almost on a survival level and on an inspirational level got me to go deeper into that drawing as a place of escape, a place of therapy, 
a place to release and transmute a lot of the energies that were present in the home with lots of alcoholism and abuse and stuff like that. And I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to be a comic book writer. And then I wanted to be a horror movie filmmaker. And I kind of went through this, you know, evolution as I went through my adolescence and then my teenage years. Then I was always a reader. My mom side of the family are all readers and book lovers and book nerds and teachers. And, uh, uh, I read Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five at the recommendation of a older, bearded, senior hippie dude in our high school. And something about that book just like pulled a drop cloth off an entire portion of my brain. And from that book onwards, I just experienced books and reading and writers in this completely different way. And I started writing more and something shifted gears. And I think I was like 15 going on 16. And I just knew I want to write. That's what I'm here for. That's what I want to do. And basically some from 15, 16 until right now, uh, age 40, there is a core part of my consciousness that is simply always concerned with writing, writing books, leaving behind this set of medicine works for the younger people slash all people to dive into and to access the oceanic life of their soul through for the benefit of themselves, for the benefit of the culture, for the benefit of everyone, really. I have So I've been writing from 15 to age 40 with an understanding that that is kind of my soul's calling and soul's identity in many ways in this life. And I, I just love it. I just, every, everything I write, I feel like I'm writing some mad inspired love letter to fill in the blank, to this elder, to these little people, to, you know, some childhood portion of myself that had all sorts of angels and spirits on his side, helping him dodge all sorts of figurative bullets. So I just love writing and thanks for asking me about it. <laughs> Yeah, no. And I want to talk about your book. So the book that you have published currently is The Memory of Souls. You mentioned the little people, but what what inspired you to write this particular book? And what does the title mean as well? Can you explain that? Yeah, totally. I went on a hike at uh, the Tillamook Trailhead last year with a friend. And it's this epic hike that takes the, uh, the trail of the people who were out here before there were any people, but the people who were out here with a friend. And it was like this three hour hike. And I, it was like the first time in four or five years where I got to tell pretty much the whole story of the origin of this book about the little people, the memory of souls. And it took me about three hours. So what I'm saying is it's a, it's a big story, but I will tell a, a good little portion of it here. I never thought I would write this book. I, I wrote it about five, six years ago. I kind of had a dichotomy going on, like a lot of natives, where I kind of divided my private ceremonial Indian self from my personal gas station worker interacting with all sorts of people, public self. And so the large majority of this material was located in that part of me that I had a long 
practice of not sharing with others except other Indians or except others who kind of in the midst of this stuff in one way or another. But then as years, as the years went along, I started getting this feeling that, you know, maybe someday I can write some badass little spiritual book that young natives fall in love with. They, they feel like they got something that they can put in their backpack that gives them strength and courage and bravery when they go out into that greater world to, to be themselves, to really to be true to their own soul's instructions, to be true to their own innermost dreams that they've been carrying their whole lives. And books have served that function for me in a lot of different ways. Very empowering. I experienced a ceremony and then a couple nights afterwards, I had a dream. I was kind of scooped out of my body and I was taken to this vast warehouse. And the warehouse was so vast that you couldn't see the walls in any direction. And I was kind of a spirit and I was with these other spirits and I was kind of floating there. I couldn't see any walls. The, the warehouse just went on and on and on in all directions. And there were all these racks and there was every conceivable kind of container there. Filing cabinets, pieces of luggage and boxes and bins and tubs and sacks and satchels and backpacks. Any sort of container that you could imagine was there on shelves in all directions. And these spirits started flying me around and they would like grab this little thing, grab that little thing, scoop up an armful of this you know, dive in with both hands and grab that. And these spirits were like taking me all over and they were just like retrieving little items, big items, things of all kinds from all these different containers in this vast warehouse. And uh, I started to realize this was my memory. Like we were flying around in my memory. And then I woke up and I thought, whoa, what was that all about? I, I had no idea. <laughs> I, had, I was actually crashed out on a a poet activist friend of mine's couch. And I just came to at like two or three in the morning and I was like, wow, what the hell was that? All about? <laughs> but then the next day it happened again. And I was crashed out on the couch of my own little apartment in downtown Lincoln, Nebraska. The spirits kind of scooped me out of my body. And this time we went to this space that was just like this vast, infinite space. It was open there were no objects there, no landscape there. There was nothing there. It was just pure open space. But they had all of that material that we had gathered in the previous night's dream. And I saw that all that material, it was conversations, it was dreams, it was memories, it was experiences, it was stories, it was, you know, things taught to me, things told to me all things of that manner. And they started kind of grabbing stuff from that pile that we had collected together from that warehouse. And they started assembling this visual, linear, sequential, pictorial, animated, vital, vibrant, and alive mural. They were, start they were stitching things into place. They were smoothing things into place. They were quilting things into place. They were adjusting the smallest details. And I was just kind of standing back in space and I was watching them do this. As time went along, I started to realize like they were making this book and then they had completed it and they kind of stood back 
And I had like this full comprehension that they had taken all that raw material of my memory and they had fashioned this book about the little people and that it was a complete finished work in the other world, in the spirit world. And then I woke up and I woke up on my couch and I had a instant full on understanding of uh, that dreams content. And I understood that there's a book about the little people that is finished and complete, both in the spirit world and inside of me. Now I just have to write it. So I started writing it and I would pray and then I would sit down with my yellow legal pad and I would write. And the book came really effortlessly. And uh, I didn't tell anybody what I was working on. It was maybe the first time in my life where just like in the moment, I gave myself permission to just go where my writer's instincts were taking me without any thought about keeping that division in place between my private spiritual Indian self and my kind of public Nebraskan self. And I just let the book be exactly what it was meant to be. And when I was done, I felt like, oh, I wrote that thing that I'd started thinking about a couple years ago. This is like a, a talisman for the young people. They can read this, they can stick it in their back pocket, and they can feel proud. They can feel tough. They can feel strong. And really, they can hopefully feel the presence of their ancestors and feel the presence of the spirits and feel the presence of their own soul's majesty. You know, all the poetry of uh, their people's culture and spirituality that's streaming through them 24-7, that is streaming through them from the divine filtered down through every being that cares about them and then out into every being they care about and swirling back up to the divine. You know, I, that's how I felt like. I felt like my back was against the wall when I wrote this book. And there's a lot of natives whose back is against the wall, but I wrote this book that can, you know, power them up and give them permission to be themselves and inspire them in the ways that the spirits inspired me when I went to the Sundance, when I'd go to the sweat lodge, when I listened to the elders, and when I would have these dreams that were in the most literal, observable sense, absolutely life-changing. So that's some of the story of the book. And the book, the title, The Memory of Souls, it comes from a dream I had when I was 22 years old. These little people came to me and introduced themselves to me as, uh, you know, my spirit helpers. They said, call me and I will come to help you. And there was a one little old man in particular. He showed me a bunch of stuff. He gave me a bunch of stuff and he told me a bunch of stuff. A tiny portion of that dream is in the book. The larger portion was left out because you can't, you can't share everything. Some things you have to just keep between you and the spirits. In that dream, that little old man, well, he told me that he said there's something eating the memory of souls. He said, we're going to fix the memory of souls to help the people. And I kind of repeated that after him. I said, we're going to fix the memory of souls to help the people. After I had that dream, I felt like I'd been given an assignment that I didn't understand. But that assignment spoke to the essence of why I was here, why I am here. I spent a lot of years doing a lot of things of a ceremonial nature to learn a lot of stuff and to heal and to become a better person and to unravel and to fulfill that assignment involving the memory of souls. 
So the book's title comes from that dream and it comes from that assignment. And I believe that assignment is actually an archetypal assignment that fits into the essence of every human being walking around on Mother Earth today. And that is to get in touch with this memory that you brought with you into this world before you were born. But I also might want to use stronger language, like say, resurrect this memory that we have inside of our souls that is dying to become an integral, potent, poetic, beautiful part of every aspect of our life and of which so much of the modern world wants anything but that to happen for the individual. The modern world does not have the interest of this particular memory inside its operational heart, but it is inside the operational heart of every human being. We're more than just flesh and blood. We're even more than just what has happened in this lifetime. We have this memory that knows and understands this. And it also has kind of living inside of it, like a bunch of whales inside the ocean. It has all these gifts and all these abilities and all these skills and all these understandings and all these knowings radiantly alive inside of it. It's like we're carrying around laptops and we've never been on the internet. That's what it's like. Yeah. The moment you get on the internet, that laptop, it can be an absolute game changer that you use every day of your life and you get to have the life you've always wanted. That's kind of what the memory of soul is. souls is. We're all carrying around with us. We just need to get it online. And once we do, we find ourselves just so naturally connecting with all of this stuff that our heart has probably been yearning for since we were playing around as kids. And so that's kind of what the book is about. I'm still on a journey of understanding myself, these kind of archetypal assignments and these kind of, I want to say like archetypal medicine endeavors that the little people themselves are very much involved in, passionately interested in, and employing all of the gifts and medicines and understandings of their cultures scattered across the globe to help humanity with, the hoop of life with, and Mother Earth with. Thank you. Did you know that this podcast has been made possible by listener support? If you like what you're hearing and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash weave your bliss. There are lots of great gifts, including a weekly astrology update from me and a monthly live new moon circle. Thanks for your support. I think this is a good time actually to read that excerpt from the book because I think people need to experience a little bit of what you're talking about. Sure. Thank you. Indians have lived in a close reverential relationship with nature and the spirit dimensions for thousands and thousands of years. In short, this way of living has gelled into a different kind of consciousness and culture and being. The wisdom and ways of our ancestors are coded into our spirit, our DNA. And although this life way of ours has been disrupted immensely in the past hundred years and then some, the roots of our consciousness and culture run much deeper than the West can conceptualize, much deeper than their campaign of decimation has so far been able to reach. We Indian people are made of rich, resilient stuff. Thousands and thousands of years of the most pure and self-sacrificing human prayers possible 
protect us and continue to carry us forward. We are of the land and as such will ultimately outlast the unsustainable monsters of modernity. We're older than this out of control story that so many think is the only story. We have a staying power crafted by all the creatures and critters of the earth, by our mother, the planet herself, by the stars and our relatives in the greater cosmos, and by the great spirit, the maker of life itself. We carry things, sacred things. We have something to say, to contribute. We Indians are this ancient land, speaking, singing, praying, and being. Like our relatives, the little people, we were here before this party and we'll be here after it's over. We aren't going anywhere. <laughs> I love that you laugh at the end. I really felt like that was a powerful passage. It speaks to what you're saying, but also just those of us who I have some indigenous blood, you know, I'm not a full blood, but I have come to these ways later in my life. I didn't grow up necessarily with an experience of ceremony that wasn't a part of my upbringing. So it's a sleep, you know, I always feel like that there's this sleeping ceremony within all of us. And, and that sort of speaks to that. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I want to say that, uh, damn, we should all feel good that we have a starting point. Wherever we look beneath our feet, that's our starting point. And it's beautiful to have a place to start from on these journeys that uh, are so beautiful they can't happen over the course of a year, are so beautiful they can't happen over the course of four years, are so beautiful that they are woven through our entire lives all the way until we're making our last prayers and having our last breaths and getting to have our last moments in this life. I would say one thing that I have learned and that these little people have been champions of teaching me about is that you can't find a single person, Indian or non-Indian, that isn't carrying around the beautiful glowing gift of this starting point. The starting point is holy, and the starting point has been protected and preserved by the ancestors and by all the holy forces of creation. It's like the, the break dancers in the 80s carrying around uh, the folded up cardboard underneath their arm. They unfold the cardboard and next thing you know, you're seeing something you can't even put into words. That's bringing uh, all the life and all your cells alive and you're feeling awesome as a human being getting to witness that. That's us. You know, we're all carrying that starting point around and then something happens to us and we want to we want to trace the scent of something our nose has caught to its source, to the kitchen that's cooking it, to the place that has been holding it in safekeeping. And we kind of start to go on this little journey. Then that's, that's when all begins. When I was young, I, to make it personal, to, to put it in more personal terms, uh, I wasn't raised around my culture. People would ask me like, oh, do you know anything about your culture? And when I became a teenager and old enough to articulate a couple of things, I would say the only part of Indian culture I was raised around was like drinking and uh, drugs. You know, that's a pretty common part of quote unquote Indian culture nowadays. Then when I kind of got into sweats and Sundance and ceremony, you know, I'd meet people who spoke the language. I'd meet people who were around this stuff since they were kids. 
And uh, I went through a phase where I feel kind of bad about myself. Like, oh, I'm starting out with nothing. My family doesn't want to help me. I would just kind of, you know, disappear into the trauma worlds of all this stuff. But these spirits, these little people, they would whisper to me, they would talk to me, and they would give me guidance. They would give me direction. They would tell me, you may feel alone, but you're not alone. You may feel bad, but your whole life isn't bad. You may feel like you don't have anybody, but there's actually uh, more human beings than we can count that are waiting to become a part of your life. Your life. They kind of grew me through this experience. They kind of started showing me like, you know what? All the things you felt bad about yourself, everybody's carrying around their own version of that. We're all starting on this kind of equal, equal playing field. And we all have spirits and ancestors and the creator helping all of us. All the people that you think, you know, have it better than you, they got their own struggles, their own sufferings. And we're actually all in this together. And nobody is less than anybody else. Grow this beautiful power inside your heart to see these truths with every human being you meet. And they started making me feel good. Yeah. Let me ask you just for somebody listening, like, can anybody tap into the energy of the little people? Do you feel like it's something unique that indigenous people have access to? Or, I mean, obviously there's leprechauns, there's the, you know, <laughs> the, the West African version of this, there's the, uh, it's gone over to Brazil. So what do you think? What's cool is all human beings have an inborn, innate, and natural relationship with all of life. All human beings have a natural relationship with the divine or the creator or, you know, pick the word that works for your, your heart and your spirituality. All human beings have a natural capacity and have a natural relationship with the other world, the spirit world. And the little people, they are of that other world, you know. And so some people, they feel more inclined to have a relationship with X, Y, or Z. I, I really feel like they're involved in everybody's lives already. And that is a, a planet-wide truth. And I bet uh, a long time ago, and if not a long time ago, uh, in the other world right now, there are beautiful, shining, jewel-studded pillars made of stone and made of wood and carved and crafted and inscribed standing in every region of Mother Earth. And these pillars say that the little people are cool. And we're glad they're a part of our lives. And every human being has ha, can have any kind of relationship they want with them. You talk to a lot of people, they say, before us human beings were here, these little people were here. These little people were the human beings of long, 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 long ago. It's really easy for us to connect with them just from a, like, almost like a, a, a cultural, like a cultural standpoint. They're so fluent in the reality of human experience and human consciousness that we get along great. We get along like old friends. We get along like uh, they're kind of like our grandpas and our grandmas, you know? So that's why they still to this day have a presence in this, in this kind of modern world that is so wrongheadedly interested in covering up and getting rid of these kind of indigenous spiritualities and these kind of older ways of thinking, older ways of being, 
these kind of ancient uh, ways of being in relationship with the world around you. The modern world wants to kind of crap on that and cover it up and bury it and try to drown it. Despite all of that, the little people are still around. You know, they're they're around as a, a pop cultural visual image that makes everybody chuckle, that gets uh, commercial gigs, gets advertisement gigs, like with the Travelocity gnome. The, the, they're still very much around. Gnomes and elves, they're like, I think such a, I think they're so integrated into our memory as a species that it's impossible for them to ever go anywhere. So we always have these little inklings, these little intuitions, these little feelings that, oh, these little people, they might be real. And the fact of the matter is they are real. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all over the world. They're planet wide. And I don't think they're ever going to go anywhere. Just like Indians and indigenous people, we're never going to go anywhere because we're composed of the stuff that encapsulates the purpose of life for beings who are here on Mother Earth. And Mother Earth has the ultimate say in the course of her story. And she wants to fill all of life with purposeful manifestations. Indigenous reality, indigenous cultures, they are super saturated by purposeful manifestations. The little people, they are maestros and chefs of the purposeful manifestation. So they're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. That's what the book said. And that's why I chuckled because we laugh when we encounter a truth that is so big, it's never going anywhere. You know, that's why that made me laugh because I'm like, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. As I was reading your book, I remembered when I was about 20, I was in Iceland and I was off on a kind of remote area and there were some houses like three houses and we were standing out looking at the ocean and they were old like houses that looked like they should be in a museum. You know, they weren't like new houses. I turned around and I saw a little boy with red hair and I told the guy I was with, there were only three of us. We were three women and a, a male chauffeur guy. He was driving us around who was Icelandic. And he said, Oh, it's the little people. Like I said, I saw a little boy. Does somebody live here? He said, Oh, no, no, no. Those are abandoned. And I said, but I saw a little boy. He said, Oh, it's it's the little people. It's okay. <laughs> and that was my first experience of somebody just being like, this is real, you know? <laughs> and then he told me all about trolls and all the different things in Iceland. And it really blew my mind. So I was thinking about that as I was reading your book as well. I, I think that's awesome. Because That's an example where this stuff is completely normalized. It's completely woven into people's everyday reality. This kind of more expansive nature of the human heart, it gets to be a musician in the flow of daily life with stuff like that, when stuff like that is just melted into the flow of life. And that's the way it should be. Those experiences, those are the things we remember. And we remember them for a reason, because... They strike that memory of our soul. They they ring the bell of it. And so we're having hundreds of experiences every day and they might fall into the depths of our memory and we never think about them again. But the things that stick with us for a reason, and I love it when cultures are still just just just, just vibrantly alive with that ancestral awareness of other relatives besides human beings. All human beings on earth used to live like that. Their consciousness was vibrating with that 
kind of awareness. They go walk out and walk outside and they're just surrounded by their relatives. They're surrounded by life and they can have a personal relationship full of communication, full of contact, full of communion, full of the richest, most beautiful interpersonal happenings with anything they choose to. And it's very, very, very humbling, very liberating and very truth feeding. And so, I mean, that, totally. that, that example, that's what we want to promote in this day and age. That's what this book wants to do, too. It wants all the people who had one experience of the little people, all the people who had a dream of an angel when they were in kindergarten, all the people who saw a Sasquatch, uh, as I put it the other night, after a night of heavy drinking. This book is meant- validating. Yeah. <laughs> Feel good about that thing. Let that thing have its rightful place. Once you let that experience have its rightful place, it's like it becomes the seed that starts to sprout instead of being the seed that's in storage. The seed starts to sprout and all this new life starts to come into your life. You know, that has divine purpose. It really has divine grace unfolding from its center outwards into the garden and homestead of your life. Yeah. So just changing tracks a little bit, you're a Ponca, an enrolled member of the Ponca tribe. And you wrote an essay as well called What Being Ponca Means to Me. And some of your writing can be found on your website, which we'll link to in the show notes. One of the things you said that stood out to me was being Ponca means truly enjoying and embracing the dreams and responsibilities I've been given in this life. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about being Ponca, maybe even about Chief Standing Bear, like your great, great, great grandfather, right? <laughs> and and just give us some information about the Ponca tribe. I want to say, uh, first off, I love being Ponca. I love being the person that, you know, I have discovered myself to be in this lifetime. And I want to say, my mom, she is white and she is German, Black Irish and Portuguese. And then my dad, he is Indian, and he is Ponca, Yankton Sioux, and Santee Sioux. I am enrolled Ponca, the Ponca tribe of Nebraska. My grandpa and my grandma, they kind of grew up in the Ponca homelands. And uh, I guess that's kind of why I identify primarily as Ponca, even though like where I Sundance, that's on the Santee Indian Reservation. I'm Santee through my grandpa, Cliff Sr. I'm Cliff the Third. Growing up, I did not learn much about what it meant to be Ponca. I did not learn much about what it meant to be Indian or Native or Indigenous. It was kind of like all happening around me and really all happening around me like a big, never-ending, wild Indian party. And I just uh, was kind of like bopping around it, watching HBO while the adults were all... uh, playing cards or playing dice, or I was playing with my He-Man action figures while the adults were all raising cane, raising hell. I became a teenager and I kind of started getting curious about stuff. And uh, I went to my first powwow, I think when I was a teenager, like 14 or 15, my dad took me to a, a powwow. I guess the Ponca tribe, you know, we were eliminated as a federally recognized tribe, I think in the 60s. And then, like, in 1990, we were reinstated as a federally recognized tribe. When we were eliminated, I think there's, like, 460-some members on the enrollment sheets. So, we were very small. 
I'm really grateful for all those kind of Ponca adults that thought that the government could decide to somehow vanish us. And I'm grateful for all the adults that kind of thought just because you decide we're gone doesn't mean that we're gone. And we're actually going to spend the next couple of decades changing that monumental air in your thinking, sir. (laughs) (laughs) We have the story of so many tribes, you know, we were devastated. We were demolished. We were relocated. We were death marched. And uh, I think every attempt was made to destroy us. A lot of my relatives are kind of, that destruction is very much alive in their lives. And uh, I think I grew up thinking, oh, that's going to be my story too. I had lots of, uh, you know, anger, self-hate, depression, lots of uh, bleakness. I actually had a, I took, I went to college and I took a native, a native lit class. And that was the first time I ever saw that there's all sorts of Indians who are like going to powwows and writing books and like learning cultural arts and like reviving languages. And man, that gave me a kind of a essential, pivotal kind of awakening and insight into how things could be for me. I kind of, I always had this uh, feeling that I did not want to repeat what I uh, experienced as a youth. What I experienced as a youth, I did not want that to become my own life as an adult. And that Native Lit class kind of showed me like, man, you can go on a journey. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are still practicing the culture, practicing the ceremonies, you know, who are kind of on epic personal odyssey of healing, remaking, reimagining, re-envisioning this story of destruction from the inside out, turning it on its head. I started going to the Sundance and stuff like that. And I started realizing like, oh, I want to be a part of this for my tribe. I started like at the powwows, we'd have sweats at midnight on Saturday after the powwows kind of shut down. And I start to kind of get to meet other relatives and meet other Ponkas who all in their own way were aspiring to give life to that that beautiful thing they were carrying in their arms that was their Ponca identity. And we did not have a textbook on how to do it. And we did not have necessarily like, here is a complete cast of elders, medicine people, human beings to teach you the complete stuff. America was very successful at obliterating a number of the outer structures of our culture. So we didn't have that complete cast. So much can come from hanging out with other natives for native people who are searching, who are praying who are crying, who want things to be different. And that was my case as a Ponca. And so I started learning stuff from these other Poncas. I started learning stuff from my other relatives. And they showed me that like the culture is not lost. You know, as much as you want to put into learning it, you will find yourself putting the volumes on that so-called empty bookshelf inside yourself. And that bookshelf can grow as many volumes as you got time to put in it. I started learning a lot about myself as a Ponca and a human being. And I started, uh, you know, seeing that like 
our ancestors a long time ago, before they had to cope and deal and process with all of this kind of recent genocide, they carried all these different understandings inside of them. And the culture expressed and carried all these different understandings inside of them. And the ceremonies carried and expressed and communicated all of these different understandings inside of them. Just like this book, the mem- the, when I'm talking about the memory of souls, those things were there for me as a panka. And I started to discover that I'm not this amorphous blob with nothing, who knows nothing, who has no direction. But in actuality, I've got all this ancestral, I don't know if my language is correct here, hardware. I just got to kind of bring it online. And these understandings that guided my ancestors' life They can be active and animate and a part of my life, too. It can kind of uh, become like self-guiding, like a river guides itself. This stuff inside of us can kind of guide itself, too. You know, I started realizing like, oh, I want to help my people. And I don't have to be a superhero. I don't have to have any special knowledge. I have all this stuff that we all have. And really, it starts by accessing your care, accessing your compassion and involved with your community, you know, helping children by being just a good relative, helping elders by being a good relative. I did that for many years. I had an elder who told me, she said, all these elders are alone and lonely. Nobody goes and talks to them. And I was in my early 20s and she said, you should go visit them. And there was something inside of me that just said, okay, I'm going to go visit him, even though I was scared and shy and self-conscious. And I would go talk to these old people. In doing so, I started finding myself full of what they had to share, what they had to say, what they had to teach. They would share their dreams, their experiences, you know, their whole biographies. Again, you you just feel yourself becoming more and more full, whereas previously you felt like you were so, so empty. And the, the shape of what being a Ponca began to fill out in me. The shape began to become something that I could touch. I could feel. I could place my hand on, you know? So all I had to do is put my hand on the shape of what being Ponca meant. I could start to understand these dreams I was having. I would start to understand these responsibilities that were actually the responsibilities that defined my ancestors' lives that were at the center of the Ponca culture. And so suddenly my life was being shaped by the same forces that were the beloved life-shaping forces of my ancestors. And I had that closeness with the culture suddenly. I had that closeness guiding my every day, that closeness with the culture, that closeness with my ancestors. Suddenly... When you have that closeness, you don't feel void, vacant, lost. You don't feel uh, alone. You don't feel hopeless because you're close to like the power source of your people. You're close to the the kind of the soul that uh, all the spirits are taking care of, that every Ponca has a, a piece of inside their own soul. And that closeness came just from hanging around with my other relatives who were on their own version of this journey and listening to what they had to say and kind of following their suggestions, following their instructions, 
and really letting my soul guide me after it received the nourishment of what they had to share. All these just completely regular people. I started figuring out like, oh, this is what being Ponca means to me. When I was young, my dad told me through my grandma, uh, Barb Peacock, you know, I was the great, great, great grandson of Chief Standing Bear. And uh, when I was young, my dad's like, don't tell anybody that, you know, don't brag about that. And my dad has had his own issues to work through, has gone to prison twice. And, you know, he's on his own journey. As I got older, I kind of was like reading about Standing Bear and, you know, seeing what he did for our people and what kind of really kind of like, you know, the civil rights figure he has been for Indian country in America. And it made me feel good that our small, unknown tribe produced this kind of historically recognized hero that actually changed the landscape for natives, for natives here in America. Can you tell them people what he did just so they know? So, I mean, all these stories are long stories, but I'll try to keep it short. You know, so our homelands are where the Missouri River intersects with the Niobrara River in Nebraska, right on the South Dakota border. The government had decided it was time for us to move to Indian country, broken promises, broken treaties, etc. And they kind of moved us down to Oklahoma. And within, I think, the first two years, like one third of our tribe died, including Standing Bear's uh, son. And Standing Bear's son said, you know, you know, I want to be buried where our people are buried. That land contains the bones of countless generations. And that's our home. And uh, Standing Bear, you know, he asked permission if he could take his son's, uh, his son's body back to Niobrara to bury him. And the Indian agent or the kind of agents or whatever at the time, you know, said, you cannot do that. I really want to say just like this will was viciously present to just stop Indians have, from having anything that had m- deep meaning for them. Anytime an Indian would ask for something that obviously had incredibly deep meaning for them, there's a vicious force in the American way with Indians at that time to say no and then to violently oppose it. And I want to say when those Indian agents said no, it was another example of them seeing something that had great meaning for us and then trying to kill us off by preventing us from having that. Well, Standing Bear and some of his uh, relatives, they decided they were going to take off uh, in the cover of night and defy that order. And uh, they did so in the wintertime with, you know, next to no supplies. And they started kind of just like secretly making their way back to Nebraska through, you know, the snows and blizzards of a Midwestern winter. And they got by by the grace of the creator and by the kindness of strangers and farmers and people back then who had hearts that could see the humanity in brown-skinned human beings, they got pretty far. They made it to uh, our relatives, the Omaha, the Omahas in Nebraska, and then basically got caught and got thrown in jail. And, you know, they were very close to making it back. And at that time, uh, Chief Standing Bear's son, I think, was just bones in a bag. It's, it's beyond belief that 
people back then had hearts so incapable of feeling uh, the reality of my grandpa carrying his son's bones in a bag and telling him he couldn't go bury them in their people's land. A newspaper man, I think his name was Henry Tibbles, he heard about Chief Standing Bear. And there were actually people who you know, wanted to be a part of redesigning a more compassionate, inclusive, humane America back then. And he took up Chief Standing Bear's cause. And basically, a lot of people got involved. And there was this court case. I think up until then, Indians did not have the same legal status. They were not considered human beings in the eyes of the law. I think they were considered like wards of state. They were a degree less. They did not have their own rights, even though in every structural, measurable, human way, they were as human as anyone on the quote unquote other side of any situation. So there was this kind of landmark court case where essentially Chief Standing Bear won the right for Indians to be human, considered human beings in the eyes of the law and to have the beginnings of the same rights as the rest of Americans. I'm open to you contributing and clarifying that I'm uh, in any way that you'd want. There's this famous moment where Chief Standing Bear stood up and he got to speak. And, you know, he said, I'm a human being. The God that made you, that same God made me. And if you cut open this hand, you're going to see the same red blood that runs in your bodies. We are all human beings. We all need to treat each other with the love, the respect, and the kindness, and the compassion, and the reverence that comes with that. You know, and that great truth had a moment to speak and alter the course of American history in that courtroom. That was the beginning of things changing somewhat. And we Ponkas, we're really proud of Chief Standing Bear. Part of the, my book is a prayer. Part of the prayer of my book is for us Ponkas to remember that. There's a lot that we seem to have lost. We don't all have those stories of, you know, Grandpa Chief Standing Bear alive in us like we should. But I believe the spirits and the creator, they had other plans for us Pankas. And they wanted to give us a hero that we could remember in this time and in this era. What happened with the fate and destiny of my grandpa becoming more than another forgotten, unremembered chief was part of the spirit's design to provide us with this empowering historical ancestral figure that could be a part of the altar of our minds and the altar of our memories. So I hope my book feeds that same work so that the Pankas can remember like, is feel good about who you are, feel proud about who you are, know where you come from, know that you have the same stuff, like those astronauts that had the right stuff and went into space, us Pankas, we got our own right stuff. It's going to carry us forward into a future that is written by the essence of the Ponka heart and not by the shit of the past 
or by an author that doesn't have our best interests in mind. So that's some of uh, my grandpa, Chief Standing Bear, and I feel very proud. Try to continue on and follow his example and use my life to do good things, to help our relatives. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and, you know, the story of your grandfather and also the history and your own vulnerability. I really appreciate that. And I think it's so helpful for other people who may be struggling to come to terms with their own history, you know, to hear your story of overcoming some of the difficult things that happened in the past and understand that door is always open and always walk through it. Well, I want. Um, I just want to say we are here to heal. And there are a numberless amount of relatives to help every single one of us with that work and with that purpose. We're here to heal. Well, so that really leads me into my next section of this conversation, which is kind of a rapid fire where you answer some questions. And, and one of them was, what does it mean to live in your purpose? I love the sacred and I love the mysterious. And I'm completely fine in keeping certain things somewhat mysterious. It just allows you to keep moving forward in this kind of uh, spiritual love affair state or status. Because there's always more to see and you're in love and you want to see more. You want to hear more. You want to feel more. You want to know more. You want to grow your relationship with this thing you love. I heard this old guy in a sweat one time say, the purpose of life is helping others. And I felt like, you know, maybe you can't nail down the purpose so uh, the purpose of life so explicitly, so specifically. But I felt like, man, that really captured at least some portion of the core essence of the purpose of life. I really believe that that old man who said the purpose of life is helping others. So for me, a, a lot of living in your purpose is committing yourself to discovering what your purpose is, and that is also recognizing this truth that we are all here for a reason and every single individual one of us has a purpose. The creator is alive inside of all of us and he has put a unique purpose inside of every single one of us. And it might be a lifelong journey to know what that purpose is, to understand what it is, to see how you can kind of pair your talents and abilities with that purpose and how then you can bring your life into harmony with that purpose. That might be a lifelong thing. But I think living your purpose really is committing to that truth that you have a purpose and kind of just following what that means for you, following the mystery of what that means for you. When you, So here's my next question. When you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? I meditate. Uh, I've been meditating since I was 18 for 22 years. You can meditate while you're walking. You can meditate while you're standing behind your check stand at the co-op where I'm a cashier. That's my day job. You can, or you can, you know, fold your legs underneath you on the couch and meditate. But I've been meditating for a long time. And that's always the first thing I do. I center myself in the presence of the moment. The presence of the moment is full of stillness. The presence of the moment is full of silence. And uh, if I start to get, you know, I'm like everybody else. I feel a lot of stuff. I experience a lot of stuff. But meditation has 
enabled me to access that ever-present silence and that ever-present stillness with a degree of reliable skill. And so that's what I do. And in that in that stillness and in that silence, like you were saying, you find your ground. You find that place where you're 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 one with the creator. And that's the place where you receive your guidance. That's the place where you receive those free gifts of peace, those free gifts of understanding, those free gifts of happiness, those free gifts of wisdom, those free gifts of grace. So this adds a little more levity. What's your favorite hot beverage? Well, a couple months ago, I quit drinking coffee. Just what? Just spontaneously. I woke up one day and thought I'd take a break. And now I haven't had a cup in months and months and months. But in honor of how much I have loved coffee for 25 years, I still got to give all favorite beverage love to coffee. Coffee carried me into so many poetic states of mind, carried me into so many like lush, fantastic, heart-filled conversations with people for so many years that I got to give all my favorite beverage love to coffee. What would your last meal on earth be? (laughs) This will probably make a lot of people laugh and I might lose some credibility. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's your last meal on earth, so... (laughs) Okay. For many years, I did not eat great. Now I feel like I eat a lot better. But for many years, my favorite comfort (laughs) food meal was this Italian BMT sandwich at Subway with some sun chips and a soda pop. And I (laughs) ate it for so long. And for the time that I did eat it, I loved it so much as this, you know, every couple of weeks comfort food meal that I started telling myself, like, I think this would be my last meal if I ever had a last meal. So you asked me what my last meal is going to be. That slot is currently occupied by an Italian BMT sandwich from Subway. (laughs) And I don't got a better or different answer. (laughs) Awesome. Do you have a a morning routine? And if so, is there any part that's non-negotiable for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I meditate every day when I wake up. And in the past couple of years, I started kind of exercising, doing Qigong, doing yoga, in addition to, but meditation is... Just and I and I pray before I meditate. So I guess meditate. I pray every day when I wake up, and I meditate every day when I wake up. Those two spiritual practices are the essential spiritual practices of my life. You know, when I pray, I get to talk to the Creator. I get to have my relationship with the Creator, and when I meditate, I get to experience the Creator's infinite being. And I want that relationship, and I want my personal experience of the creator to be the kind of the central force of my life and the central force of my spirituality. So I do those two practices every day and they they just help me feel like myself and they help me just keep everything that's important to me right in the center of my life. Awesome. So something people may not know about you. I've been reading comic books since I was about 11 years old. I still love to read comic books. I don't read as many superhero comics. I read kind of the more adult graphic novels. And I've been watching horror movies since even before that. And I just, I love horror movies and comic books. And I'm probably going to continue to let myself love those uh, for a a long, long time. I just love them. (laughs) 
So what are you reading right now? That's the next question. So I'm reading this awesome graphic novel by Portland-based journalism cartoonist Joe Sacco called Paying the Land. It's essentially a... It's essentially a, a graphics novel documentary about the Diné people up in Canada. Kind of everything that we've been talking about on this podcast, just super excellently, super artistically rendered and reported. There's so many different Indians talking in this fat graphic novel. There's so much history. There's so much story. There's so much culture. There's so so many tears. It, it's a, it's a real great. I feel like uh, you know representation of this big story of us, and I, I love it. It's a it's a perfect match of my interests. Great graphic novels, and you know what's going on with our uh, native peoples here on uh, Turtle Island. One thing that's bringing you joy right now. Oh. It's bringing me a lot of it's 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 bringing me a lot of joy to carry my book out into the world and to kind of uh, put little pairs of wings on my book and send it flying in all these different directions and to field these opportunities that are coming to me. This is my second podcast I've ever been on, and to then uh, go where the book wants me to go in terms of helping it to have a life out in the world. It's a joyous first time experience for me. This is my first book getting to like have some some readers out there. So can you share with the listeners how they can find out more about your work or if there's anything you want to share that's coming up? Well, uh, I got a lot of writing that you can check out on cliffponka.com, C-L-I-F-F-P-O-N-C-A.com. My book is uh, most easily available on Amazon. You can contact me through my website and I'll send you a signed copy if you rather do that. I'm on uh, Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Just look for Cliff Ponka. I share a lot of content. Anything you want to connect with me about, just send me an email. Well, thanks for your time today, Cliff. I really appreciated the conversation. Thank you, Paula. This has been a wonderful way to start my second day off of my weekend. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. And I, I just want to say for the listeners who don't already know this, Paula is just the most wonderful, gracious, <laughs> intelligent woman. And I'm so glad that I know her. And I'm so glad that I know her partner, Kiaho. I feel very happy in getting to have this conversation with you today, Paula. Thank you so much for all the the work you do in the world. Thank you. Oh, you're sweet. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. Thank you.